I eventually started to learn like, oh, I could just ask, right? Mm-hmm. Which is yeah. so simple. Like, hey, what's going on with you? Yeah. You know, like, are you, you know, are you upset? What's happening? And if I did it in a way that wasn't too accusatory, like I'd often get information back. Either it was something with me, but then I know, or it has nothing to do with me. A lot of times it has nothing to do with me. But it's another one of those places where I have this superpower of perception, but it's just getting overused everywhere. Yeah. Right. Because I can sense people, I should be sensing people. No, no, no. Sometimes I should just ask people what's going on with them. That's, That's actually right. better. You're a high achiever. On paper and through the eyes of others, you've made it. Congratulations. But the truth is, you feel unwanted, unworthy, and unlovable. You always have, but you hide it well. Welcome to the Trauma Hiders Podcast. I'm Karen Goldfinger Baker, and this is a podcast where high achievers like you finally reveal what keeps them up at night that no amount of money or recognition will fix. I'm also making it my business to speak with people who get you. Hell, I get you. I am you. So get your best hider's face on, sit down, and let your guard down. What's on the other side of this shit will change your life. There are so many ways people like us fuck ourselves over. But let's start with five ways. When you know them, maybe you'll finally stop doing them. Over on my website, you'll find a free download listing the five ways your fuckery is getting in the way of the next level of your success. Grab it now at karengoldfingerbaker.com. You know those friends you don't see or speak with very often, but when you do connect, you can pick up right where you left off? This conversation is that. And I'm picking up with my friend, Toku McCree. He's many things, but to me, Toku is love, accessibility, energy, calm, acceptance, and peace. A coach to many, including superstar founders, Toku is the unconventional blend of direct and inspiring all at once. In this conversation, we jam on how trauma shows up in leadership, the dark side of trauma response as a superpower, how childhood experiences shape who we are and how we be in the world, and so much more. It's a fun ride of truth, stream of consciousness, my skincare routine, and a whole lot of truth. Did I mention truth? It's all right here, right now, in the Trauma Hiders Club. Toku. Karen. Here you are in the Trauma Hiders Club. What are you hiding right now? What am I hiding right right now? Yeah. Wow. Wow. Get going in deep fast. Let's go. I mean, it's interesting. So I'm uh, what's showing up for me in this moment is there's just like stuff with my body that isn't isn't doing great. Mm. Like, you know, I'm I'm into my 40s now and my knees kind of bothering me and my, my back's bothering me. So, you know, I. I like to appear very vital and fit and, and my body's, my body's a little achy. So I'm feeling, mm. I'm feeling a little old. I'm feeling a little old today. Are you uncomfortable right now? No, I'm okay. I'm okay. okay. I, I have like a little twinge in my back because I worked out a little too hard a couple days ago. Yeah. So no, it's fine. I don't need to, I don't need to do anything, but it's like, man, I wish that I was, you know, whatever, younger. Do you think it's age necessarily? Um, I mean, I think age is a factor in it. 
And why would you want to hide that? Well, it's interesting. I was talking to my coach about this the other day. So I lived for a period of time in a, at a Zen monastery, which some people think is the most interesting thing about me. I don't know, maybe, could be. And uh, part of what we do at the monastery is we'd sit for long periods of time in meditation, very still, very upright. And you don't move. So even when like your leg hurts, you don't move. If you have an itch on your, your nose, you don't move. So I basically developed like an incredible capacity to be with suffering, which if I'm honest, is really just an extension of my own childhood trauma of being with suffering and difficulty. But I like, I like went pro level with it. Like, you know, my childhood trauma was amateur level college, college being with suffering. I went like postgraduate level at the monastery. You got your PhD right there. Yeah, exactly. So I, I have built this incredible capacity to be with suffering. And then part of me thinks like, well, now I've got it. So I should just use it all the time. Mm. I should just like whatever suffering I have, I should just be equanimical about it. I, you know, shouldn't advocate for myself or try to make things better. It would be better if I just, you know, suffered all the time, basically. So if I'm going to tie a loop back to my question, which I don't think you answered. <laughs> Why, why is aging and the aches therein something to hide? I mean, I think it's it's less about aging and the aches. It's more about the, I have a sort of reflexive response to hide my suffering. Ah, because why would anybody care? Got and it. my suffering is just going to be a burden. So you know, it's more laudable. It's more heroic. It's more of good character of me if I just bear my suffering with an implacable expression on my face. Got it. It's interesting. So like if we were to if we were to break this conversation down, what I heard was aging. I just turned 59. No. It, honestly. No. I know. Yeah. Look at this. It's face. a good it's a good thing that is this isn't a video podcast because everyone at 59 would just feel horrible about themselves now. I know, right? You look so good. <laughs> well thank you. I have a very good skincare routine. If anyone's mm. interested, I will post it on my website. Oh, I love that. Along with the products. I should get sponsored. You should. I should. But it is interesting. Like your stuff just kicked up my shit, which is mm. I'm old and Toku, don't fucking knock your old <laughs> shit around. And here I am, like not even picking up on the suffering thing. So fascinating. And I think totally relate to it. Yeah. I do. Yeah. Granted, I was never in a Zen monastery, but I believe I have an MD PhD in suffering. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the MD part I probably got from WebMD, but mm. Mm. the PhD part definitely got from my own life. Yeah. Without a doubt. Yeah. Okay, cool. So do you want us to... I'm going to ask a different question. If if you were to bring your suffering forward and not hide it, mm. and we had streaming video, mm. we have streaming video of you hiding it, and then the after is you're not hiding it, what would we see that's different? Or what would we experience? Yeah, I don't, I don't know how to answer that. I'm not sure. I wouldn't like have like a grimaced expression on my face. I mean, I mm -hmm. think me sharing it is me not hiding it. Like, oh, mm -hmm. I've got you know a thing going on with my back. I can feel it. I mean, it's interesting for me, the hiding suffering tends to show up in the margins. So it's like, I'll allow myself to do something that mm -hmm. doesn't feel good for me to do. Like my, I'm the man, so I should carry the heavy groceries. Well, my back might hurt and my partner who's very strong and capable could totally carry 
the heavy groceries, Mm -hmm. but because that's the, you know, I'm supposed to be strong and tough. I should do that rather than like, actually, you know, sweetie, babe, could you please carry the heavy groceries? So Mm -hmm. it often comes up in those situations where I like would advocate or not advocate for myself. The place specifically where this came up recently is I stayed at an Airbnb and it was just like dirty and there was dog hair everywhere and it smelled bad and I was sneezing. And for some reason, it took me like four days to be like, we need to leave this Airbnb Mm. because it's like, well, okay, can I be okay with it? Can I make it work? Like, that's the place I first go with suffering. It's not like, oh, is there an easy and simple way I could communicate what I need and ask for something different? It's my first initial response, which again, I think is really given from trauma is like, how do I deal with it? How do I cope with it rather than change it? Yeah. Yeah. And then if we could even break it down and say, am I worthy of asking for Mm. something different, Mm. right? Am I worthy of having something that doesn't have dog care and dirt and smell? Mm. Mm. We could go there. Yeah. I imagine that I'm going to check in with you on this, that you could compare any suffering to being in silence in a cross-legged position with your ass on a stone cold floor for Mm. hours at a time. Like you well, could we, make... we sat on cushions. I mean, you oh, know, you there... did. Okay. But there's limits. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Even so, like, I'm just, I'm not a floor sitter. So for me, yeah. Somebody, if somebody said to me, Karen, um, you're going to spend the next even 24 hours mm. and you've got to stay on the floor the whole time, mm. I would be like, I'm going to leave now. Um, <laughs> I'm just not a floor sitter. So I'm wondering if you make, do like the, I don't know, we'll just call it like the suffering comparison or the suffering range. I sat on that floor for years. I can handle the Airbnb. I wish it was that conscious. It's not. Okay. Well, there's two things. I think for me, it's not so much that I'm not worthy. It's become inverted. Like, look how noble I am. I can be with so much suffering, right? The little suffering show off. Yeah. Nice. Oh, that is cool. Yeah. Um, So that's part of it. And then I think another part of it is like, and this is something I find true of myself and other people who have been been through trauma. I know before the show, we were talking about like startup founders and executives and stuff. And I think what happens with people who are, I'm going to call them high functioning trauma hiders. Hello. Is that they, they develop a capacity through being with trauma. And then as a result, they're like, oh, I should just use this capacity for everything. Yep. It's a superpower. It is really nice at times that I have this, you know, like we were, my partner and I were recently, recently in Egypt, we were staying in an Egyptian apartment, which by Western standards would be challenging, mm-hmm. right? Can't, you can't flush toilet paper down the toilet. There's like a shower with like a big drain in the corner. You got to squeegee the water in. The whole thing's a little like dusty. Only one room has air conditioning, right? So it's, it would be challenging by Western standards. Very nice by the standards of Egypt. And so... It was great because I was able to be in that environment and not fall into just like constant complaint and suffering and like just become a horrible person. I was like, oh, how do I be with this? How do I find the joy here? That's great. So in that situation, super valuable. Mm -hmm. But then you take that same thing and apply it to like, oh, this is an Airbnb in the States and there's hundreds of other ones. I could leave anytime. Even if I lost the money on this Airbnb, I'd be fine. And so I'm now applying it to a situation where it's just not appropriate. And I find mm-hmm. that people who have like trauma superpowers, who have who are high functioning trauma people, they do this where they're like, yes. it's like the trauma superpower. I'm going to use it everywhere, yes. even when it's not necessary. 
Absolutely. Yep. Without a doubt. We've heard it said the way we do one thing is the way we do everything. And Mm. so we bring that into all areas of our lives and quite possibly show up in probably a bit less connected than if we weren't letting that be the driver. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. I mean, I see this a lot in my, in my clients where it's like, it's like they're always generating crisis or they're always hyper-focusing on crisis Mm -hmm. because a lot of them grew up in really chaotic situations. I see some of this in myself too. Me too. Where it's like, I'm really comfortable in crisis. Yes. So I'm really good in crisis, but when things are fine, I need to like stir the pot so that it gets a little crazy so I feel safe again. And um, it's tricky because it's like you're making the crisis so that you can use your superpower. Yeah. And they usually don't see that. Right. This is absolutely something that I see all the time and- I can only spot it because I got it, right? Yep. And this is an, even an assertion based on what I've researched and mm. the various trauma trainings I've done, trauma and somatic specifically. Our bodies are at a set point. Mm. And that comfort, there's comfort in that chaos. Mm. There's comfort in the, you know, in that traumatic setting. And we mm. want to go back there, even if it's horrible, mm. but our bodies are used to it. The, the discomfort actually is when things are good. So we have to look for shit to stir up or just like go peeking under rocks, looking for like the wormiest, squirmiest stuff. Mm. And there it is. It's always going to, we're always going to find it. But imagine like if we got in touch with that and could choose outside of it. Yeah. That's the work. Yeah. And it's so interesting too, because what happens is then we like, we either recruit people that match the wormy squirmies (laughs) or we start to treat people that way. And then they turn into the wormy squirmies. Mm. I've heard so many, you know, I complain to her a lot from startup founders and other leaders I work with is like, oh, the people are kind of a flavor of the people around me are stupid. Mm -hmm. Like, some of them, I've actually had people outright say that. And then but there's also just like this, I can tell by like this attitude, like, why are these people so dumb? Mm-hmm. And very often when we look into their past, they were around stupid, like, you know, their parents were falling apart or like they were too smart for school, right? So their teachers and their classmates were stupid. And usually there's some residual, like they were shamed or, you know, made wrong for that. And so like, they're kind of like their little kid is living in this world of like people around me are stupid. I have to like do a lot to make my life work with them. And so it's funny because some of the times they'll just hire people that are stupid. That does happen. Yeah. But a lot of times I can tell they think the person's stupid. And I've talked to the person like, they're not stupid. Mm-mm. They're very smart. They're very caring. But of course, if you treat someone like they're stupid, eventually they kind of start to act stupid. So it's It's fascinating how it becomes this sort of self-fulfilling prophecy so often. Yeah, for sure. And if that leader, let's say, is someone who's carrying around the weight of trauma, Mm. they are, if well, if they're anything like me and it's childhood trauma, Mm. they very likely had to navigate on their own. So if you're, you know, in my case, my 10-year-old self having to navigate the next 11 years until I came out, and by the way, I probably had to navigate far longer than that, but mm. 10 to 21, absolutely on my own, navigating my world. Mm. I had to be really smart. I had to be really vigilant 
I also had this perspective that nobody is, nobody gets the real me. I mean, I created that, right? Like nobody gets real mm. me. And I had the self-awareness to know that I was living a dual life, mm. right? I, had, I was walking around with a big secret. I was tricking everybody. So how fucking yeah. smart am I? <laughs> <laughs> right? Like I'm showing up like a normal person every day. Mm. I'm showing up like a whole functioning, solid, funny, relatable, lovable person while feeling absolutely the opposite of that. Mm. So I'm, geez, I am, I'm fucking brilliant. Yeah. Everybody else is stupid. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. Yeah. I mean, for me, it was, I had to develop the ability to be really perceptive. Mm -hmm. So to kind of sense what people were feeling and doing. Absolutely. The place that I think is, it's shown up a lot for me. This is interesting is that it's made me hypervigilant in relationships. Mm. So in my relationship, I'm always like trying to lead, read the tea leaves of my partner. Like, <gasps> and of course those tea leaves are always like, they're upset with me. Like that's what, it, you know, it's not like their boss said something to them or like, you know, they're having a bad day. If they're like grumpy, it's not that like something, you know, it's, oh, it's me. I did something wrong. You know, what is it? And then it's either like, oh my God, how do I fix it? Or like, well, what, what's their problem? Why can't they dot, dot, dot. And so it's interesting because I, I eventually started to learn like, oh, I could just ask, right? mm -hmm. which yeah. is so simple. Like, hey, what's going on with you? Yeah. You know, like, are you, you know, are you upset? What's happening? And if I did it in a way that wasn't too accusatory, like I'd often get information back. Either it was something with me, but then I know, or it has nothing to do with me. A lot of times it has nothing to do with me. But it's another one of those places where I have this superpower of perception, but it's just getting overused everywhere, Yeah. right? Because I can sense people, I should be sensing people. No, no, no. Sometimes I should just ask people what's going on with them. That's, That's actually right. better. Yep. But, I, but like you said, I think because when I grew up, I didn't know how to ask. And if I asked, it, it wouldn't land well. But I was like, oh, okay. I just live in a world in which I have to use perception rather than communication. And, and that just carried forward. I mean, I, I see this in myself and I see it in so many other people too, where it's, again, it's this trauma superpower that just mm -hmm. gets overused. Right. So if you can think back to when you were young, hmm. was curiosity welcome and were direct questions welcomed in the environment? I mean, it's interesting. I kind of had a dual environment. So with my parents, I would say yes. My parents, so my parents met at a debate tournament that gave mm. you some context of what my family's like. <laughs> nice. So we were always really encouraged to like ask a lot of questions. And we like kept a dictionary down by the dining room table so we could discuss words. And so it was very, you know, but then when I went to school, that was not my experience. Mm. One or two questions, fine. And then after that, you're being disrupted. And I had a lot more than one or two questions. I bet you did. And I didn't have just questions about the material. I had questions about the reasoning behind why we were being yeah. taught what we were taught, the method of the teaching, the way the teacher was teaching us, like everything. And so that was really hard. I mean, I have to, now having taught, I was a preschool teacher for a while and teaching you know, classes to adults, I understand that I would have been a tough student to have mm -hmm. in class because I was ready and willing to challenge everything. So I think in that environment, it wasn't very welcome. And I, I sort of got this idea like, a little bit of curiosity is fine, but too much and you're weird, you're not welcome, you're a trouble kid, all that kind of stuff. Nerdy, right? You might be nerdy too. Yeah. Like why do you even why do you even care? Go, 
you should be excellent at baseball, not at curiosity. Yeah, I didn't get the nerdy thing. Oh, good. Because I was like kind of aggressive and nerds aren't <laughs> typically aggressive. So I got like the argumentative, that kind of thing. You know, it's funny because when you were describing that, I was like, huh, I wonder if Toku has a little oppositional disorder within him. Could be. Yeah, like just a, just a little just sprinkling. A just a little yeah. sprinkling. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it might be. I don't know. Yeah. Not because you were curious, but I was thinking about my experience of you. Mm-hmm. I've not had opposition. Like we, you and I have not necessarily butted heads, but yes, I we was, have. Did we? Just, I, so, no, I'm just <laughs> Fuck you. Um, that's right. We did. I fucking hate you. God, we're going to end this now. Um, yeah. I, there was just, there was just like something that came up in me. I was like, mm. huh. you know, because we, well, you're much younger than me, but there wasn't a whole lot of looking into the behaviors of young people. It's more like stop being who you mm-hmm. are. Mm. There were all these behaviors that were just like lumped into problem student or problem child. Yeah. You could be as brilliant as, you know, be the most brilliant person in the room, but the behaviors got you could get you lumped into problem student. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was I was of the generation where a lot of people were medicated. I was a little bit before that, and my yeah. parents didn't medicate me for good or for ill. But I was in that generation where, like, they were just you know any pr- quote unquote problem child. They just like were giving them Adderall and Ritalin, basically. Yeah, my generation was like just a pile of pile of bad students. Mm. Maybe get tracked for some in some weird way, and interestingly enough, so many of those bad students or difficult children came out of the, that public school system and are doing incredible things. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was lucky that I had some, I was gifted, right? So they had a gifted program. So that was nice. So I wasn't totally lumped in with the bad kids. Yeah. I had some gifted teachers that really uh, advocated for me. Nice. um, Which I think really helped. I mean, you know, it was school was still really hard for me. And hard for a lot of people who are creative, innovative mm-hmm. thinkers, right? I mean, hopefully not breaking my arm, patting myself on the back there. But, you know, I was really kind of different as a kid. And I was lucky that I had those had those people in my corner. I think that's one of the things that's helped me now be able to work with other people who are, you know, smart and don't quite fit in is, you know, I, I did have people advocating for me. So I had some early examples of how to be with that and how to accept that and work with that from a young age. Yeah, really nice. So we got on this subject. Because we were talking about like the <laughs> almost like our damage as superpower, but yeah, but it's not. How do you see that in leaders that you work with? How do you how do you see that trauma superpower get in the way more than you know calling other people stupid? But like, can you share other ways where it might yeah. be tripping people up? Well, one of the big ways is that it's sort of like, I've got this superpower and so you should have it too, is like mm. perhaps the biggest way. And so there's often with, and I, I see this in especially with startup founders, there's this like, well, your suffering should have produced this ability. And if it didn't, kind of almost like I should make you suffer so that you get it. Like if you suffered, then you would get it. So it's like this weird pride thing. And then often just a real 
misunderstanding of how other people work. Mm. Because I think that's one of the things that trauma tricks us into is like, it tricks us into a particular worldview. And then it's hard to understand like, oh, other people had a different experience of life growing up, or other people didn't have this same kind of trauma. So they don't see the world the same way we do. So it tends to be like, why aren't they more self-reliant? even though often the leader's self-reliance is the problem, right? Sort of like hyper self-reliance, which means I don't ask for help. I don't delegate. I don't rest or like accept intimacy. That's a big one that I see a lot of. The other is kind of like being right, you know, because if you're in a really tough situation growing up, it's really helpful to be like, well, I'm suffering and I'm getting controlled, but I'm right about what is right and not right. You get very righteous. That's another like, that's another greatest hits. Well, I think those are two good ones. And I'd be curious yeah. to know what, if there are other ones that you see. Yeah, I definitely see those. I also see, I see this hold back of, I guess it's like a hold back of full expression. Mm. I don't know that it's fear. Mm. Uh, I'm thinking through like what, I don't even have to know, right? But I'll just describe it. It's, I want to show up as competent and strong and with a vision and with a mission and with answers. Mm. And I don't want you to know that there's a big part of me that has a lot of doubt in me. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. It just came to me. Trust is like the... I don't know why it came to me. Trust is like the push me, pull you. If anybody knows <laughs> what movie that's from, mm. I think it's Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I don't even know. But um, <laughs> there's, <laughs> there's like a tension with trust because there's the showing up in I trust you. And by the way, it's said a lot. I trust you. I trust mm. the team, right? Like a good mm. leader trusts. And yet, the person who is least trusted is one's self. Mm. Yeah. And I, I find that the trust one's an interesting too, because it's, it's a bit of like, either it's like a trust setup. Like I trust you, I'm going to give you all this responsibility, but not train you, not teach you, not mentor you, which inevitably means that person is going to fail. And then it's like, look, see, I can't trust anybody. Yeah. Or it's like, I'm going to withhold trust and I need you to prove it to me which is guaranteed to create fear and tension and difficulty in the other person. That's right. Also then it's like, well, they're never doing quite enough for me to trust them. Yeah. Yeah. And I think the thing that's so interesting is that when I talk to leaders who have these traits, they very often point to like the problem or the cost is out there. It's like, well, if they don't dot, 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 I'm going to fire them and lose. But what I'm really present to is like the cost to the founder. Sure. Because they end up feeling really isolated they feel like they always have to be on. There's nobody they can be honest with. Like they're always like weaving a tail with themselves and with other people. Yeah. And they're never quite getting the support that they could get from their teams, which often their teams are really incredible because they're drawn to these, you know, dynamic, creative, passionate people who have a big dream. But the cost is really to the founder and then and they don't and then they don't realize it, you know. And then they blame like, oh, I hired badly or you know, whatever it is. They always blame it on some other sort of weird choice without really seeing that it's like, it's because they're overusing these superpowers that it's like exhausting. You know, it's right. just tiring all the time. Like it, it's like, 
hammering nails is great, but if you start to hammer screws, that's going to get really tiring because screws are not meant to be hammered. Right. Yeah. And it's also interesting along those same lines with the trust dynamic, the building of a team and again, using the language of trust and the behaviors of trust and the culture of trust and still using that duality of I am flawed, unlovable, unworthy, Mm -hmm. right? And so what happens, I think, is often founders become like evangelists, Mm -hmm. right? They kind of have to be. Mm -hmm. So I don't know if you're anything like me, I hear evangelism and I'm like, I want to throw acid on that. Mm. (laughs) Like, I can't believe you if you are evangelizing. What are you hiding? What's behind that curtain? Mm. Now, that could be me, you know, childhood sexual abuse survivor who is hypervigilant, who's like, don't fucking fuck around with me and lie. Mm. Right. Like, what are you hiding? But I mean, maybe that's not everybody's experience. But once I hear someone going like over the top with Mm. trust and believe, I go to I don't trust or believe. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I and I bring that to my people like "Mm, that sounds like a bit of evangelizing, which might be me bringing my stuff and I'll call myself out for that. But still, it's there. Yeah. And, you know, it's like that old phrase, proof is in the pudding. I would say proof is in the being. So who your team is being, who you're being. Like that's where, that's where the proof is. And I think people have this weird dichotomy idea with trust. Like, well, I'm going to just give, give people lots of trust and they'll rise to the challenge or I'm going to withhold trust and then they prove it and then I can relax. But of course that never threshold never seems to pass. Mm-mm. And so like often, you know, when I work with, when I work with leaders, it's, it's, it's interesting. It's like you start off by like, you know, if someone, if you hired someone and you investigated what they did, like give them trust, like, you know, trust yourself that you did a good job hiring. Yeah. So just like start by trusting them, give them things to do based on what they do. Right. Right. So that's like kind of just give trust. Start with like, I want to trust you. So I'm going to trust you. And the second is like, you got to create an environment where that person is trustable. Cause if I hire someone to like take care of my plants and I don't show them how to water the plants, they're not trustable. Why would I expect that I would be able to trust them? That's crazy. So, but I'm giving them my trust. Like, Hey, I trust you to take care of my plants. And now I'm going to create trust with you by teaching you, mentoring you, showing you how it's done, like having a really robust plan so that it, I, like, you know you can do a good job and I know you can do a good job because we created that together. And then it's like investigating trust, like, okay, I'm noticing trust is missing. Or I'm noticing I, I'm not relying on you. What's missing here? And sometimes I think the thing that's tricky is sometimes in that process where we're investigating trust, we discovered, oh, this actually isn't a good match. Mm-hmm. The person's assessment of themselves, my assessment of them was wrong. And People, a lot of founders, anyone who does hiring is like, oh, that's a failure. That's a waste of time. And I'm like, no, you learn something from that process. They learn something. It's not that you screwed up and you shouldn't trust them again. It's like, okay, cool. Here's the things I did well. Here are the things I didn't do well. Let me do something differently next time. And and hopefully we're both better people for this process. So let's move on and choose something else. Because I agree with you. The evangelization to me also goes along with this like happens once and becomes like a commandment. And it's like forever rule rather than like, oh, understanding your own evolutionary nature and the evolutionary nature of the people you work with. Right. For sure. I had a thought and then it like went away because I saw this weird sparkly thing behind you. Yeah. It's not there now, but you were, it was really, yeah, there was like this radiance thing that happened. 
Are yeah, you on a just... first floor? <laughs> no, I'm in a I'm in a roof, but there is a little hill by the house. And sometimes cars come around the 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 thing and the light hits the window the right way. And oh wow. It creates a little little magic. Or or a ghost could also or be a, a ghost. ghost. And, you know, and I do see dead people or dead things. Do you know that about me? Do you see that? I mean, we all we all have seen dead things. They're on the side of the road. Yes. Like, no, I see like ghosty things. You see ghosty things? I do. Yeah, it's interesting. My partner and I, we often have like energies and spirits come visit us. Yeah. So we have to like do a bunch of work. Every time we get a new place, we like spray and we clap and we clear because otherwise things will just wander in. And latch onto you? Do they like follow you or more my girlfriend than me? She's very kind of open. Yeah. She's like a, I mean, she's like a high priestess, witch type person, like very energetically open. So I'm, my system's a little bit more like robust. They will get near me, but they don't tend to latch on because I'm not as juicy. She's like really juicy. So they like her. And then when we're together, it gets worse because we both have a lot of like energetic capacity. So we got to be very clear, like here are our boundaries. You know, thank you and you're welcome. Please leave. We have to do that a lot. That's cool that you found each other. Yeah. Right. And you have someone to share. I feel like, I mean, it makes sense. Most of my life, I feel like a freak because when I talk about, in fact, I don't talk about it because I feel like a freak, but like in the house we're in now, right away, there there were ghosts from day one. Yeah. Yeah. And all sorts of, all sorts of shit would happen and I would get great visitors. And by the way, I actually welcome them. Like I say, every night as I'm going to bed, if anybody's here, you know, like I think I don't say it out loud. If anybody's here, like you're welcome. We can hang out. Yeah. It's been several months since I've had any kind of thing, but often in my bed, I feel like this depression of someone sitting down. It's not scary. It's all good. My ghosts are cool people. Yeah. And everyone works with them differently. Yeah. Yeah. We, we find we like to have a, we don't mind them coming. We're like, okay. And this is our space. Like, yeah. We're going to have this is our space to be in. Yeah. But yeah, that's great. Yeah. It's cool stuff. And I, I, I understand people definitely feel like it's weird and people think I'm crazy and whatever. That's fine. They can think that. Yeah. Do you know when you were first aware that? You were in touch with this other dimension, I suppose, or whatever it is. If I look back, I've always been aware of things like that. Mm -hmm. I think it's ironically people who have had trauma get really sensitive to all energies, right? Right. And so so there is that. But then, you know, I think for me at the monastery, there was a real claiming of, of mysticism mm. and the idea that like we live in a world of mystery. And that for me was a real kind of wake up call. And then recently I've been I've been doing some work with a shaman and and feeling into those different energies. I mean, the thing that's interesting for the most part is that while it's been there for me because my like shell is a little bit thicker, I can kind of ignore it. But I tend to like date women who who their shells are a bit thinner. Yeah. And so that has been like a big of like the like, oh, I feel this thing. And I'll be like, oh yeah, I can feel that too. You know? Cool. So um, and a lot of it has just been like, oh, claiming that and being okay with that. And if people think I'm weird, then people think yeah. I'm weird. I'm okay with yeah. That. Yeah. I'm okay with it too. I mean. With people thinking I'm weird or people thinking you're weird? Well, I'm definitely okay with people thinking you're weird, but um, <laughs> I'm getting to be okay with people thinking I'm weird about this in particular. They can think I'm weird about other things. Yeah. But I don't often share so much. I'm curious where, this might be like such an obvious question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Where does the life in a monastery play out in your work as an executive and leadership coach? 
I mean, what we do at the monastery primarily, the primary Zen practice is to sit and watch the mind. Mm. So, you know, I spent two years watching my own mind. So it allows me to watch other people's mind with the water precision, you know, and the, the reflection I get a lot is twofold. So one, people will talk at me and then I'll be like, oh, so what you're saying is this. And like, you know, 10 minutes of talking and I'll two sentences. And they're like, oh my God, yeah, that's totally it. Right. So part of it is a way of like kind of simplifying all the complexity of the mind down to its its smallest things. So that's one level of it. And people love that. And then also there's like a under people uh, often leaders will describe, here's what this person is doing. And I was like, well, I don't know what's going on with them, but this could be what's motivating them. Mm. Right. Because, again, all of our minds kind of work in the same way. So that's one that's sort of on the practical side, like understanding yourself kind of knowing what thing to drop in at the right time and helping leaders understand the people around them. And then on the second level, it's just like being and presence. You know, people often say like being with you is not like being with, with anybody else because there's a way in which I can be still and calm and with them. And so just sitting with me can feel a bit like a refuge. And that's just, you know, that being and presence is something I just honed at the monastery. Were you that way? I mean, you chose the monastery, right? Nobody forced you to go. No. Was there something within you that wanted that? How'd you get there? It's a good question. I mean, I feel like a lot of my trauma or challenges growing up had to do with being with the capacity or the weight or the range of my own heart and my own mind. I was this little being with not a lot of skills and abilities. And, you know, I thought big, I loved big. And so it was, it was just hard, you know, it was, it was hard for me to be with that capacity. And in my twenties, I used a lot of ways of like, just, I just was like, how do I limit this? So I like smoked a lot of pot, sort of hung out with people that like were smart, but weren't doing a lot. You know, I tried to sort of limit my ambitions because I was like, I need to kind of cap this because it's just Mm. too much. Right. It's too much for the world. It's too much for me. It's too much for other people. How do I cap it? And I, I did a bad job, but I was, you know, trying kind of in a, in a weird way. And so the monastery gave me a different way to be with it, where it's like, I'm, oh, you I'm don't gonna stop. Wait, I'm going to interrupt yeah. you for a second. Sure. How did you know you were too much? Oh, well, I mean, the messaging everywhere was that I was too much. At, at now, home, there was an English school. class I was had in high school. I got kicked out every week. Once a week, I got kicked out of class. What were you doing? I was arguing with the teacher. Okay. That was She was dumb. Yeah, she was dumb. (laughs) I mean, she wasn't dumb, but like, you know, she would make these, she was insecure. She was a young teacher. That's great for you. Ooh, Toku. You're going to just laser in on that. Laser on that. So she was insecure and she just kind of wanted me to comply. She didn't kind of know how to work with me. She didn't know how to work with a kid like me. She'd never done that before. And I don't think she was that kind of kid. She was probably a good student. Mm Mm-hmm. And so it just drove me crazy, you know, because I would challenge her and she'd give me some weird answer and be like, that's a weird answer. So there was that, you know, I, I literally had, I had a girl that I was trying to date in college being like, said that she would directly, you're too intense for me. Like, I can't mm. go out with you. You're too intense. When I did, there was like, I had a senior reading in high school where it was like, you got like, you, like, it was a, for my church choir that like, you, you sit up there and people would talk about you. Everyone's like, oh, you know, Sam, which is my my given name. He's so argumentative. He'll always debate everything. It hurt. It was like, oh, 
like people don't see like my passion or my brilliance or my love. People just, you know, I'm the kid that likes to argue. And so I got that message that I was just too much. So yeah, I, I mean, I got it. I got it all growing up. So I'm imagining you're a kid. Yeah. Not so young, but you, you were in college and then afterward. Yeah. Kids in college are still kids for sure. Yeah, yeah. I see, but that's yeah. true. Yeah. Kids in college are still kids. And so you decide at some point, I'm going to a Zen monastery. Was there like Buddhism in your life or? Not really. I mean, I was, I was in Nashville. The people in my life at that time weren't really doing a lot. You know, mm-hmm. some of them have gone on to do great things now, but weren't really doing a lot. I was kind of a rat, I mean, underachieving and surrounding myself with underachievers. But I knew enough to like get out of Nashville. I was like, I got to get out of here. So mm-hmm. I ended up going to Portland and took another job in the music business and that didn't work. And it was like the best job I'd ever had. I had two bosses. I was working like 60 hours a week. I totally burnt out and I got fired for doing the right thing. You know, I caught the boss like stealing from the bands, like embezzling basically. And I confronted her and got fired. And I was like, you know, screw this. And so then I just, I met somebody at a party. I, a friend invited me to her roommate's birthday party. She didn't even go. I just decided to go. Who knows, right? And this kid at this party who was like 24, I think it was 27 at the time. He's just really calm. And I was like, what is your fucking deal? Oh, nice. And so it was just something about who he was being. Yeah. And then we had this conversation, which was so simple. It was like, you know, tell me about you. And he was telling me about the the monastery and the his backpacking and I asked questions and, you know, at the very end, he made a very simple invitation. Like, you know, if you want to come try meditation, come try it. And I tried it and I just, you know, took to it like a duck to water, just loved it wow. because it was, it was a way to be with my mind that wasn't a drug that wasn't sex, that wasn't distraction. And I could feel my mind and my thoughts slow down. You know, I often refer back to this story because when I think about my work as a coach, because in a way, as a coach, we dare, right? There's this daring thing we do. It's like, we're going to sit on a computer and imagine that every conversation we have could be a life-changing conversation, which is crazy because we literally have thousands of conversations that don't do anything. That's that's what they feel like, right? That's right. But part of what I remember when I think about becoming a coach is like, I go back to that conversation. Him just being with me and sharing his experience and creating the possibility of meditation and creating the, po- I mean, it, literally my whole life just branched off in a totally different, like, you know, sometimes when I'm like, is coaching worth it? Nobody's changing. My founders are all jerks, you know, whatever it is. I remember back like, oh yeah, it could be like that. I could have yeah. like a thousand conversations that way, but that one conversation that I have with someone at the right time, who's really open, who's really listening, that conversation could change their life. And that's yeah. the game I want to play. I love, you know what I love about that? Now, clearly I wasn't in the room, but I'm imagining like softness and quiet and stillness. Mm. And there are no bells and whistles and there is no trying hard. There is just truth and being, right? Like just being, purely being. And so much of specifically like around coaching, so much of what we're trying to do with all that trying and the should and the life-changing is all this stuff. And yet that purest, cleanest, still soft conversation is what blew your fucking mind and changed your life. You know, and then just to tie it back to the theme of trauma hiders, I think that that when I feel into like my inner child, 
and like the part of that child that is untouched by trauma, that's what it is. Mm. It's that quiet curiosity. It's yeah. that quiet wonder. Same with me. Yeah. I think that's, that's where the real magic is. I love that. You've been listening to the Trauma Hiders Club podcast. For more episodes, head over to my website where you'll find links to resources mentioned and all the ways you can listen on your favorite podcast platform. And if you're ready to fight, discover the rules of Trauma Club. Head over to KarenGoldfingerBaker.com.